there was that part of him that was just so generous and so giving. He was loyal. He was basically the pinnacle. One of those modern warriors that truly embodied every sense and every letter of that word. Consummate, quite professional. He inspired us. Incredible warrior, incredible leader and very, very sincere at heart. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself or what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Brett Wood joined the Australian Army in 1996. He completed selection and joined 4 RAR Bracket Commando in November 1998, which later became the 2nd Commando Regiment. Brett deployed to Malaysia in 1996, Bougainville in 2000, Timor in 2001, Iraq in 2003, and Afghanistan in 2006. During that deployment, for his leadership in action as a team commander, he was awarded the Medal for Gallantry. He received a commendation for service with the Tactical Assault Group East in 2007. He deployed again to Afghanistan in 2009 and 2011. Brett was tragically killed in action by an improvised explosive device on 23 May 2011. As the 10-year anniversary of Brett's passing approached, Life on the Line was asked by one of Brett's close friends and fellow commandos to commemorate the day. We have done so by creating this special podcast, a celebration of his life. We've spoken with family, friends, and colleagues of Brett, from those who knew him personally to those who served alongside him and marveled at his professionalism. This podcast shares just a few of many great stories about Brett Wood. I'd like to thank the following previous guests of Life on the Line for coming back on the show to remember Brett. Number 31, Dr. Dan Pronk. Number 54, Wes H. Hennessy. Number 77, Adrian Humphreys. Number 87, Jeremy Holder. Number 97, Paul Kale. Number 102, Heston Russell. And number 105, Damien Tomlinson. I would also like to thank for participating 2nd Commando Regiment veterans Jamie and Tom, Brett's sister, Charlene, Brett's friend, Ian, and Brett's wife, Elvie. These are their memories of the late Sergeant Brett Wood, MG, DSM. Our first contributor for this special podcast to remember Brett Wood is his sister, Charlene, and we're having a drink together to celebrate his life. Charlene, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I don't think I can do this without a drink, so I appreciate it. All good. Cheers. Cheers. Charlene, can you just give listeners a brief overview of Brett's family structure? Because I think it will be eye-opening to many. I don't think many people really know. I mean, people might have a little bit of an idea that we're a bit of a broken family, but not 
exactly have a complete understanding of our family structure. So Brett was from dad's first marriage and then I've got an older brother Ryan and I from the second marriage Brett has two other sisters from his mom's second marriage and then we've got two other siblings from my dad's third marriage so there are a few of us so we don't all look the same but I think the great thing about Brett was that he never treated us like we were half siblings ever and I never felt that way especially you know when we grew up in in our older years Brett was from Victoria and he was a country boy. We were based up in Sydney out west and he used to come and visit us for holidays. I remember it being just the highlight of, you know, my time growing up. Brett's coming, you know, up from the country. He used to bring us homemade weapons. Uh, Yeah, my brother especially loved it. Growing up with boys was always such a competitive environment. We used to have lots of kids over from the block and they were all, you know, my brother's friends, my brother's age, and there was always a lot of competition going on. So there was a lot of, you know, you can't ride as fast as me down the hill and you can't run as fast. And I was always trying to keep up with the boys, always. And every time Brett came around, he was that enabler. He was always super protective and just really encouraging of, you know, me keeping up and didn't matter if I was a girl, didn't matter if I was little, didn't matter if I had chicken legs, <laughs> which he always used to say, be like, keep up chicken legs. You know, he was always really encouraging. And I think growing up, I got a lot of my confidence from him. My name is Jamie Zimmerman. I met Brett Wood back in 1996. We did uh, initial employment training up in uh, Brisbane. We then went on to 6RA Delta Company and uh, served with them. We served in Malaysia together, uh, which was a a great uh, deployment. Came home and we went on to commando selection course and uh, we did that together as well. We both collectively served in Timor, Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, when we went into uh, the reinforcement cycle and the unit and commandos, our paths took two different ways, but uh, we certainly kept in touch and remained very good friends as well. Back in the early days when we were with 6RR Delta Company, so a big shout out to the boys up there in that era. There's a competition called Dog Cup where you find the best team in the army. And to even get on that team or section, you've got to compete within your unit to be part of that. And and Brett and I were part of that. And I just remember good memories preparing for that. It was long days. We had a, a good coach bringing us up to speed, preparing for that uh, for that competition. It's a good fond memory. And you know, the other one was when we were notified or asked if uh, we'd like to do a selection for commandos, or the re-raising of the unit to a full-time capability. Remember distinctly, Brett and I, you know, sticking our hands straight up and finding, wanted to find out more and, and how we could apply. Yeah, when we were on selection, it, it was tough, absolutely. You've got these sort of anecdotal fond memories and then you sort of forget the rest. There's a pack walk or a go for like a 30-kilometre walk. Ours in particular was a, a loop where you could actually pass each other. Brent and I would pass each other and uh, give each other the nod. And uh, we, we were young, 2021, 20, probably a bit young on our reflection, trying to keep up with these uh, sort of senior soldiers and top guys. So, uh, yeah, just got fond memories of Brett and I just sort of hanging in there and uh, getting through it. My name's Ian McLaren. I've known Brett for at least 28 years before his passing. When his grandma bought a store locally and, and I met him probably he was about four years old and we got to know each other prior to going to school together and we went to primary school together and high school together, played football for a couple of different teams together through that period and we grew up on farms nearby to each other and went out hunting, fishing and surfing. We had a great friendship and that carried on right throughout. 
once Brad had left school around 95, 96, and he'd gone off and done his basic training, he came home, for, uh, must have had some leave. And he came home and he bought himself a car from his grandma and a few of our other mates had got their licenses and bought cars and the rest of it. And he came and picked me up and we went for a drive and met up with a few mates out the back of Wonthaggy and got out on some dirt roads out there. And it would have been, you know, in the middle of winter or something like that. And anyway, a few of the boys are skidding around in their cars and Brett thought he'd have a bit of a go. And <laughs> anyway... I was sitting in the passenger seat and he's skidding away in his car and halfway down the road, we sort of left the roadway and there was a big culvert and Brett's car ended up on its side teetering on the, this culvert and the driver's side window was in the water. The water was starting to come through his window and I was stuck in my seat and I'm waving at the blokes further down the road and, and Brett sort of dropped out the bottom window of his car and up to his armpits and he's gone, fucking, that's deep as. And anyway, he thought he'd climb up past me and out the top of the car. And anyway, as he was doing it, the car started rocking and I'm turning around and I said, fucking, he's up, it's going to roll over. And as I've said it, the car's turned upside down in the water. He swam straight out because the water was flying away from the road, luckily, and not into a culvert. And he's jumped up out of the water and I've had my hand on the seatbelt the whole time. And when I've gone under, I bloody swam out. And by that stage, these other boys had come down and parked and were standing around us. And I got out of the water and turned around to Brett and I said, um, I thought your basic training was at Puckapunyal. It looks like you might have gone to Cerberus. We got berated standing there like a couple of drowned rats for you know, an hour waiting for a tow truck and in the cold. And I reckon the story that was told to his grandma and his mum wasn't the same one as uh, that would actually happened. And we had a great friendship and that was just one of the experiences we had together. And he was a great man. And you sort of reflect back on that as you get older. And when you lose someone like that, you look at it and you say, you realise the value of the relationship you had with somebody, I think, when they're gone, sadly. Often we don't look at it closely enough, you know, when we're having those relationships, but um, what an experience. It's HT. I think most people, or most listeners to Life on the Line are relatively familiar with me now, but I've recorded a few episodes on here and Alex has asked me to come back to talk about one of my closest mates, Brett Wood, who was killed in Afghanistan. And when Alex asked me to do that, I thought of a particular time in East Timor where we were, uh, we had a FOB, a forward operating base up on top of the mountain there where Bravo Company was located. We were out on a balcony of an old relic building we were living in. And there was a um, young boy who was sort of limping past the wire, as in we were wired in, if you just think sort of Vietnam style fobs. And he was limping past the wire to the entrance to the fob. And it was quite evident that he had a distinct injury, albeit at the time. I think it was on his lower limb and arms. I wasn't sort of sure, neither was Brett. We were both just standing there in the balcony in our um, PT rig, having some uh, time off in between operations or outside the wire operations. Yeah, I must admit, it went through my mind to sort of, you know, we'll go help that kid because he was passing. He wasn't coming to us for help, but in distinct trauma. And Brett sort of nudged me and said, mate, we should go grab that kid. And it's his initiative. I need to give him full credit for. And it's like, and, and as soon as he said that, like I said, the thought was in my mind. But as soon as Brett said that, uh, that's exactly what we did. So anyway, we went out to the front, to the gate there where the, we have a guy, uh, one of the guys or a couple of guys on picket, depending on the threat levels. You know, I should wave at this guy over towards the gate and we went out through the gate and then had a look at his injuries. I think if I remember correctly, it's, it suffered some significant burns and it, it might have been some sort of accident. I'm not entirely sure, but um, it had reasonable trauma on one of his lower calves and I think his forearm. 
we called him back in through the gate, and Brett was a um, qualified patrol medic, which is uh, highly qualified um, medic within army realms and within combat medic realms. And he took a lot of pride in that in that role within our team. And um, so he went and got all his kit, as I just you know, soothed or reassured uh, the now patient, for want of a better term, and then came back with his kit. And um, you know, we spent a good hour or two with him, cleaning his uh, wounds and then uh, dressing them and giving him some uh, medication to get through you know, the next couple of days to help with the pain, maybe some antibiotics and a few other things. So it was just quite a moment. And I, I actually, I haven't got that many sort of pictures of myself and um, Brett, but uh, I can't remember who captured it, but there's a picture of um, myself and Brett treating this guy. So it's always been you know, quite a memory and it shows that side, you know, and a lot of people have spoken and, and know Brett for, you know, his uh, flair in combat, we'll say, but I thought it was very important to also note, you know, there's another whole part of Brett for those who don't know him really well probably don't really realize or know we can all go on about combat and warrior this and warrior that but he was quite a uh, empathetic individual and very very sincere at heart and um seeing him do things like that was quite common well a few years later he is well into his army career and your family unit moved to the philippines how is it like being separated from brett how is that relationship between the two of you both internationally and also once he was in a new phase of his life. Yeah, I mean, at that point, Brett was well into it. He, you know, had already been to East Timor, um, I think, at that point. And it's like he had this whole life in the army and was already so established. But we were so sad leaving him and dad always tried to get him over to the Philippines but he was already married to the army like that was his thing why couldn't you know for RAR just send him on tour to the Philippines deploy come on <laughs> I know actually he came to visit us a few times that was awesome I remember him coming to visit and just all of my school friends being so envious like who is this guy like coming in I'm like, that's my big brother he's so cool yeah just always so proud and excited to have him my name is Elvie Wood and I am the wife of Brett Wood I first met Brett in 2004. We were at one of those, I hesitate to call it dodgy, but it was a triple O ball where the frontline people have a night off. So, you know, your ambos, police and fireys. And I went along to one of those because a lady I worked with, her husband was a fiery. And I met Brett on the dance floor and I, being a little bit socially awkward and didn't know what to ask him. I just said, what are you, police, fiery or ambo? And he said, I'm army. And I said, well, what are you doing here? And he said, well, what are you? And I said, I'm none of those. And he said, well, what are you doing here? I just loved that cheeky little side to him. And I think that was it. Even though we were friends for a long time, I think from that moment, he pretty much had my heart he, he disappeared for a bit. I think he went to get a drink and I was just on the dance floor doing my thing, cutting some moves and um, started dancing with someone else. And the next thing I knew, I, I was picked up and whirled around and taken to another part of the dance floor. And so that's why I always used to like to say to him that he whisked me off my feet and that was the beginning of our story. Brett was um, the first person that I really met and knew who, you know, worked in defence and I had a very naive view of our defence force and the role they play in Australia and overseas. But one of the things that struck me the most was how proud he was 
to be serving. And not long after I met him, he was promoted from Lance Corporal to Corporal. He came over to pick me up for dinner one night and he just couldn't even contain it. He just, as soon as he walked in the door, he was like, I got promoted today. And he was such a professional at work. He always maintained a, you know, a steady head. And I'm sure many of the guys that he served know his great sense of humor and the way that he would joke around. But when he was working, he was serious, he was dedicated. And it was just really lovely to share that moment with him where he could be excited and be a little boy and be like, you know, look at me, I'm I'm getting to where I want to be. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm to commando and special forces and I'm a corporal now and really special to share that moment with someone who really loved what they did. I was in a really boring administration job and I didn't love what I did so it was my first real experience of seeing somebody who loved their job. I'm Jeremy Holder. I was Brett Wood's medic on his 2006 deployment to Afghanistan and also his platoon medic uh, in 2008 in Tag East. Uh, one of my best memories of Brett, and I think one that really shows the character and type of man and warrior that he was, was in Operation Perth when we were ambushed and had quite a lot of our platoon injured after a volley of RPG fire. The next morning, Brett comes up to me, he's like, Jez, can I get you to check out my foot? I think, I think I've hurt my toe. You know, when a commando walks up to you and says they think they've hurt their toe, sometimes you can have a bit of a chuckle and maybe a bit of a dig in them. But uh, Brett wasn't a complainer. And so when he took off his boot, his toe was quite swollen. So it turns out the afternoon before we were ambushed and had multiple casualties fragged and evacuated from the field that Brett was fragged and injured in the same incident, but he kept it to himself. And he did that, you know, he said, because his mates were injured. The platoon was missing a third of its fighting force and he wanted to stay out there with his team and do his job. You know, I was really worried because, you know, he had a bit of frag potentially in a joint in his toe and it could be career affecting. But, you know, Brett said he didn't, you know, I'd had a big day and was exhausted. And then the team had lost a lot. So he didn't want to be a burden. And so in the end, I evacuated Brett from the field the next day via AME. Thankfully, everything turned out well after the frag was taken out. But it really showed the character that he was by staying out in the field and serving his boys. So Charlene, Brett's first deployment to Afghanistan is 2006. And during that in Operation Perth, he performs an heroic series of actions, which see him awarded the medal for gallantry. And he is awarded that medal and anonymously at the time, and it's not revealed until after his passing that he was the recipient of that medal at the time. He's just identified as Corporal B, but his actions are known within the unit and within family. How did you respond just as a family member to Brett receiving that medal? Like, how did that go down? When he came home from that tour, he didn't say anything about what he'd done over there. We had no idea. All of a sudden, there was this ceremony that was coming up and, you know, he'd love for us to be there. Didn't tell us anything about it. He said, oh, a few of us have got awards, da-da-da, there's a ceremony happening. So we're like, okay, cool, let's go along and hear it. And it wasn't until we were actually hearing the citation that we knew exactly what he was up to and what he was doing. And we ended up like having a conversation with him afterwards and going for drinks. And, you know, he was showing us his shrapnel runes through his fingers. He got shot in the hand and he had this like tiny fragment of bullet in his finger and it was still in there, like they hadn't operated on it. And he just said, oh, that's no big deal. The citation <laughs> refers to his foot. I didn't know about the hand injury yeah. as well. Jeez. Yeah, he had, he had shrapnel in his hand. And I said to him, why don't you get that taken out? That looks really painful. Why don't you get it removed? And he said, oh, my body will just push it out. It's no big deal. 
And that was just Brett, you know, no big deal, doesn't make a deal out of anything. And he was always so humble. Is that your first like real substantial insight into what his job really is like? Oh, right. I get it. This is what commando means. Yeah, totally. Like I had no idea that he was actually getting shot at. You know, he'd call us sometimes or he'd call me sometimes and, you know, I'd be in the middle of work or whatever it is. And he couldn't really talk about what he was doing over there. He never really told us any details. He would just sit there and listen. And, you know, I'd talk about my trivial life. (laughs) He would listen and tell as little as he could. And I think him being over there, he just wanted to hear our voices and know that we were okay and know about trivial things that were going on the other side of the world while he was, you know, over there doing his thing. That dose of reality to remind him of what he was over there doing and why. Yeah, exactly. Do you remember when Brett was awarded the Medal for Gallantry and that award ceremony day? I remember Brett calling me from overseas. He was deployed in Afghanistan at the time and uh, that's when he found out that he was going to receive that medal and he was so excited and I was so proud of him and it was so hard to have that conversation over the phone and not to be in person with him. It was a very secret sort of a private ceremony. It was held at Holsworthy. There was no media. The Prime Minister was there but because they were serving members of special forces, they couldn't be named, they couldn't have their photo in the newspaper. So it had to be sort of done very privately. And it was unbelievable to be there with him that day and to hear them, the two guys that were awarded that day, there was a story about their actions and why they had gotten that distinction and to hear what he had done. Yeah, I I was so proud of him. And he, he was, yeah, I think he was literally bursting out of his skin because he was achieving probably more than he ever dreamed he would. And it was something I really reflected on many years later when he was awarded the DSM, which is the Distinguished Service Medal, and that was done after he'd passed away and I had to receive that on his behalf. And it was very, very bittersweet because, again, I was so proud of him, but he wasn't there in person to receive it. And this time it was so public, whereas before it had been so private. So it was a nice day, but also a really sad and hard day to deal with. My name's Damien Tomlinson. At the first stage I met Brett, I was private Damien Tomlinson, and he was one of the instructors on our Commando Urban Operations course. He was serving in the the Tag East at the time at um, West Hennessy H. He was the CSM. I think he was sort of running the course. And there were guys like that you noticed as, and you really looked up to, especially during that initial phase of training. You know, I didn't have that much military experience. And to see someone like Brett, he had this really quiet, confident demeanor. Plus everything that he had, like when you looked at what he was doing, he was just so organized. And it was so organized. Nothing looked like he was putting a lot of effort into what he was doing. You know, like those people who are like high level elite just make something that's so difficult look so easy. He was one of the guys that sort of did that with everything he did, which is a really good example to have when you're doing something like when you're just spending so much time doing all your shooting and your drill work and stuff like that. It was good to have someone that makes it look so smooth in one of those leadership positions. Yeah, he's just, yeah, it was awesome. He sort of escalated from there was the old school, the old sort of guard, which were people like him, H, and, and a 
just a host of others. And once he'd been awarded the initial MG from his deployment, you know, it was one of the first awards of gallantry that I can remember from our unit. It was a really big deal. And I remember being like on an Anzac day in Customs House. We're all in there. And someone just made comment to him when they were like, there was a line happening for the piss trough or something. And then he sort of, he sort of walked in and did something. Someone stood out of his way and mentioned like, oh, blah, 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 and MG. I mean, it's a little bit hazy because we made sure that we were giving it a nudge. But I remember just like looking at his face and he just had this like cheeky wry grin on as he looked at it. Like never, never overstated, didn't say anything back, didn't really need to talk in that moment. Just kind of looked and gave that little I'm in control of this grin, which, yeah, I just, it was, it was kind of like, you know, you're, you're watching one of your NRL stars, you're meeting him for the first time, you know, or one of your the heroes, you're starting to get to see that. And then they just live up to every expectation in one moment without having to do anything over the top. Yeah, it was great. My name's Heston Russell, and I first met Brett Wood prior to us serving together at Two Commando during his sergeant's course and my regimental officer basic course at Singleton in 2007. So I had just come out of RMC after previously being ADFA as a brand new lieutenant to be a platoon commander. And we were joined by all of these very senior corporals to conduct their sergeant's course on promotion. It was a key thing to put both together as we would essentially be working in those roles, platoon commander, platoon sergeant. And it was a very unique course for us because we were this, I think it was about 12 or 13 of us fresh out of RMC lieutenants. And next thing we were on this course with this group of senior corporals with only one from the regular army and I think five or six of them from special forces. A fair few of these guys had just come back from their second, third or fourth deployment to Afghanistan. But in the special forces role, and here we were fresh out of the college, full of doctrinal tactics and theory and good to go. And one of my first memories of Brett was with the other guys. They all got along so well trying to put together their patrol webbing, trying to put together their waist belt webbing. You know, they had previously come from recent deployments in Afghanistan where all they had were their chest rigs and vehicle rigs and so the other. And watching these guys try and put together their belt rig. <laughs> only because they didn't do anything in halves and everything was high performance. So their webbing was pretty high speed. But just watching and listening to the disdain of them trying to put it back on and we had to go out and conduct some you know, live fire exercises, section platoon attacks, lining out, conducting fire and movement. And every time watching these guys, I remember watching Brett. <laughs> you would have to run and then go to ground and start engaging. And just watching him do it very determined but also very delicate to make sure that he put himself very gently on the ground. You know, we'd come from doing all these sort of things in training where we threw ourselves on the ground. We thought it was awesome, you know, getting into it. He's like, mate, <laughs> I've injured myself too many times doing this crap. We're going to get through this because <laughs> I have to go back overseas. It was very hard to get a smile out of him, but I tell you what, he was a troublemaker. You know, we definitely went and had a few social occasions during that course. And you know, he was always a very blokey bloke. He was always kind of very proper, but, you know, he would be the guy that would get that little wry smile creep over his face. He knew he was up to trouble. Definitely wasn't backwards and coming forwards and didn't lack confidence. But at the same time, he was very sort of quiet and respectful, a very sort of solid personality. We just had the utmost respect for him and the other guys on that course and just the wealth of knowledge they brought to us. It was fascinating sitting in these classes and hearing Brett 
talk about one of the recent engagements that they had overseas in the context of this senior infantry warrant officer trying to talk to us about you know these engagements utilizing heavy weapons and things like this and i think brett was one who came out and said yep well we just grabbed the 84 and shot him with an alum round or did these sorts of things and we were sitting there these were tactics techniques procedures we'd never heard before I didn't see him again then until I completed my selection course in 2010. Gone were a lot of those troublemaking larrikinisms that I remember when he could really just have his own way on that course. The next thing, he was even more serious. He was even more determined, but he just had a huge level of respect afforded towards him. He really was a combat soldier, a combat commander. But at the same time, he wasn't just rough around the edges. He was polished, he was proper, and he was the highest levels of professionalism that you'd want. The loss of Brett was a big loss. Every loss is big, but when you have someone who has that reputation, who has that prestige in the unit, you know, Brett was a proper cut from the cloth, top 1% of his whole cohort, as well as being a fantastic guy and just a weapon at his job. You know, the loss of Brett really sent some huge ripples through the unit. And to this day, it still does. Brett died in the highest level of combat action that would only be even close to justifying removing him from this earth. And the legacy he left was just so tremendous and a legacy that had zero arrogance, a legacy that was built on 100% confidence and character. One of those modern warriors that truly embodied every sense and every letter of that word. You don't really meet too many of those people. Charlene, I understand there's a particular story at your 21st party that involves Brett and touches on what a number of his colleagues have told me about the cheeky side to him. (laughs) I think the thing that I love the most about Brett and, you know, quite often when I catch up with some of the guys from the unit, they're like, wow, you're exactly like him. And that makes me feel so good, but also kind of worried. (laughs) Um, He was a little bit of a menace. I remember for my 21st birthday, he was in town and I was so excited that, you know, he was here for it. I had a party at the Ivy Pool and I had a whole area booked and I was really excited to have all my friends over and my big brother. It was on a Sunday. I may have had to call in sick the next day. (laughs) (laughs) But we had a really big day and at the end of the night, most of my friends had gone home because everyone has to work the next day. But there was Brett and my other brother Ryan and Brett decided to strip off into his underwear and jump into the middle of the pool while this whole party was going on. And so everyone was like cheering, like, yeah, Brett's jumped into the pool. This is amazing. And so naturally, Ryan and I did the same thing. We stripped off into our underwear and followed him into the pool. And we had the best night. And I, it's, I don't know, it's something I will never forget. And just sort of epitomizes who he is, like, A, his cheeky is fun, was never afraid of a good time. And also whatever he did, no matter how outrageous, you would want to follow him. A sentiment shared by many of his (laughs) brethren. One of the things that really attracted me to Brett was his generosity. He was a very generous person and I always remember a story. They were doing a training exercise. It was one of those things where he'd get the call at, you know, 1am and that's it. He was out the door and off he'd go and I'd have no idea if he'd be back that day or a week later or, or what was going on. And they were doing, I think, an exercise off of the northern part of Sydney and they had to come down from helicopters into little boats or rubber dinghies. 
bitterly cold, I think probably like 3am and, and they're there and it's dark and it's cold and they're all wet and they're all waiting in the boat and he'd packed a brownie, a bit, some pieces of brownie that I'd baked for him and he was eating it for a bit of sustenance and the guy next to him said, oh mate, can I have a piece? <laughs> and he said he did not want to give him a piece but he just couldn't say no. So he had to share this brownie and he told me when he got home how hard it was to share it but he just there was just no way that he could just eat it in front of someone and say no to them. So there was that part of him that was just so generous and so giving. Such a family person. He really understood how important his family uh, was to him and he was loyal. He was loyal to so many people in his life. And just when I thought he couldn't surprise me anymore he would always manage to do it. He led on to me that he was going to propose. Uh, so that wasn't a surprise, but we were in Thailand and it um, was actually Christmas Eve and he'd had a bit too much to drink and we were lying on beach chairs at the beach at 3am in the morning of Christmas Day and he said to me, I really want to marry you. And I said to him, is this a proposal? And he said, no, 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 I'm going to do it properly. I'm going to do it properly. And I'm like, okay, okay sort of fast forward to sort of three, four weeks later, he took me out to dinner and um, proposed, which I, I, you know, I knew it was coming. In the same breath of asking me to uh, marry him, he said, have you thought about the wedding? And I said, no, because you've just asked me. And he said, well, I have. We are going to elope and we're going to go overseas and we're going to go to Estonia where your grandparents were born and where they met and they got married and that's where we're going to get married. It just floored me that he had that thought and he had he knew that that's what he wanted to do and that he wanted to make it special for both me and him. My name is Paul Cale. I'm a uh, former member of the 2nd Commando Regiment and before that the 4th Battalion Commando. I knew Brett Wood when I was transitioning onto uh, the Tactical Assault Group team. I was going to be the um, emergency action commander for Delta Company, which was the first time that a company, a full company, rotated into the tactical assault group as opposed to the trickle effect, which had been done up to that point where individuals would trickle into the company and out of the company. But basically, Charlie Company held the capability. It's a very difficult job. And uh, what I found with Brett Wood is that First of all, he was an incredible professional when it came to being the commando full stop. But as an emergency action commander, his skills and his ability to give orders at very short notice, detailed and clearly following the guidelines, it's a very structured process. And it's one of the most time-pressured jobs in the Australian Army. And uh, basically, there's no other job for a sergeant in the Australian Army that is so time-pressured and has so much responsibility as in numbers. So as the emergency action commander, as a sergeant, you could in effect end up commanding the entire company if the assault goes in before the DA's ready, basically, in a nutshell. He was extremely good at this. What I found is that he would give of his time and nothing was too hard. You know, there was no question that was too stupid or even when you practised delivering orders and that he would spend time with you and and give you some insights and, and so on and basically my goal was to deliver orders as well as he did that was he was basically the pinnacle as far as I was concerned I was used a lot I got the skill squared away I ended up doing two company assaults in training several platoon assaults and so forth and so on and, and I got used often to demonstrate orders to 
the commandos coming through Rio's cycle and so on. Once one of the OCs said something to me which sort of stayed with me and he goes, you're almost the best emergency action commander I've heard. There's only one better. And I said, that'd be Brett Wood. And he goes, exactly. Now, to me, there could be no greater compliment for him to say that I'm second best to Brett Wood. So that's how good Brett was at it. And that was just an example of all the skills. Like he was that way really towards everybody. His ability to communicate, I would hear him say one little thing. He'd be, uh, you know, he'd say the aspect of white and red. And I go, oh, aspect, I like that. That's better than corner. <laughs> so, so I'm going to put that in and I'd, I'd write that word down and I'd just, you know, it was, it was kind of like that. It was just meticulous. I'll say this to you. When guys are killed in action, the way people talk about them, they, they kind of end up a bit better and you remember all the best parts about them and they sound too good to be true sometimes and it's like yeah well we put all the bad bits to one side because you know we're remembering the guys good qualities and and the good things about them because they've sacrificed their life and I get that but with Brett you couldn't do that he was that in life he was that good there is no talking him up in passing because he was that good his ability to cut through the politics, I guess, or not the politics, the cliques of groups. So you do end up with a couple of groups that think a certain way and seniors, soldiers and seniors sort of gravitate towards these leaning on thinking in how things should be done. So you end up with groups trying to drive capability and it's not unhealthy, but he cut through all of that. And I don't know anyone who's got a bad thing to say about Brett. I think he saw that, you know, if you were keen to be as good as you possibly could be, he would spend as much time with you as you liked. I had nothing but great respect for him. And then uh, we got back from our tour uh, in 2010 and he came up to me and he, and he goes, I read the uh, Sabakalai battle and, um, you know, just want to say well done, JJ, you know, great job. And I said, hey, look, thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. And again, for him to say that was um, meant a lot to me. He was deploying. So we came back, another group came in, he was going, we were going on leave. I went to the United States on leave to do some work and take some time off, but you also investigate things to do, you know, relating to work. And uh, it was when I was in the US working with some Marines and uh, I got a phone call from another good mate, another sergeant, and he literally, I, I remember clearly, he just said, JJ, Brett's gone, bro. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, he's gone. I can remember it as clearly as if it happened this morning. I was just absolutely stunned. I was devastated because the last thing I said to him was about talking about that battle and thinking to myself, like, you've got a guy here that reads everything the company previous has done. He just knows what's going on. I mean, that's how much of a professional he is. He just always investigating in his own time. And I just remember how hard that knocked me and, um, also made me realize that even when you're you're not there you know you're losing guys you know there's no escaping losing mates and oddly enough you have a sense of guilt even though you're not in their company and you're not there and it's just if you're not on the ground doing something you almost feel guilty that you know you're on leave from your own trip a big hit and I think about him him often as I do a bunch of other guys but for him he's a very important person Uh, He was very important to me, and I'm very grateful to have had the chance to have my life affected and touched by him as a person and his professionalism as a commando. Before his last trip, 
he came to see me at work. And at that point, our relationship as we grew older was getting better and better. And we used to see each other more and more often. And the day before I went away, he came to see me at work and I was always so disciplined with work. You know, I'd be like 60 minutes, that's it, not a minute more. So dedicated to my job, but also I remember, you know, just complaining about my job the whole time. And he was just so good at listening and he just sat there and, you know, he had so many other bigger things to worry about. But in that moment in time, I was all his and he was, you know, completely just dedicated to listening to me and always made me feel like I was the most important thing at the time. I always remember him coming to see me that day. He had so many other things to do. But the fact that he came to see me before he went away is something that I'll always cherish and remember. Hi, my name's Tom and I served with Brett in the 2nd Commando Regiment. Uh, we were the platoon sergeant and platoon commander of Tango Platoon in 2011 when he was killed in action in Afghanistan. I'm sure most of your audience will be familiar with the relationship between platoon sergeant and platoon commander. Uh, when it's working well, it's a relationship of trust, reliance and mutual respect. And I feel like uh, Woodrow and I were a great team. I know for sure that I relied on him far more than he did on me. He was the experienced sergeant and I was the new officer finding my feet. So I did my best to watch and learn and not screw up. And over our time together, I learned so much working with him that I will be forever grateful for. I definitely think many of the things I learned from him sustained me even after he was gone. Woodrow was the consummate quiet professional. He never waffled on or spoke unless he had something important to say. He just got on with the job. Even before we worked together, I could see he was highly respected by everyone who knew him. And because of this, when he did speak up, everybody listened. I only had the privilege of teaming up with him for a bit over a year before we lost him. But in that time, we got to the point where I could tell from a look where he stood on a subject and what his advice was going to be. I trusted him implicitly. And of course, I knew he had my back just as I had his. So I'm grateful to have so many fantastic memories of Woodrow, even from the relatively short time that I knew him. And when trying to choose a favorite, I always come back to the downtimes between missions while we were deployed. I will always remember him coming to get me for lunch or dinner, knowing that I'd be sitting in the office pouring over a set of orders for the next mission and not watching the time. As busy as he was, getting the platoon organised, stocked up and ready, he would still make the time to ensure that I got a decent meal. And those meals were always good opportunities for a chat and a laugh. But my absolute favourite memory is from a company-level planning session about halfway through the deployment. In my opinion, Woodrow single-handedly changed the course of our rotation to the point that it became one of the most successful in the history of the Special Operations Task Group. Up to that point, we had already completed numerous missions, but at the platoon level at least, we were all feeling a bit dissatisfied with the impact we were having. There seemed to be a real reluctance to put us in harm's way, which of course is where we would be able to have the greatest effect. I remember the planning discussion going back and forth about options for future missions and levels of risk in certain areas. And I remember looking at Woodrow and I could see his frustration building and building. Finally, he did something that silenced the whole room. He spoke up. He didn't slam his hand on the table or stand up or raise his voice. All he had to do was speak. Calm and professional, respectful but firm. He didn't have to use a lot of words, but his message was clear. We are commandos. This is what we do. My name is Adrian Humphreys. I served in the 2nd Commando Regiment with Brett 
within Charlie Commando Company Group from 2008 to 2011. Um, my particular story took place on Rotation 15 in early 2011. I was part of the comms planning for a joint mission that our company was planning to conduct with a SEAL team that was co-located with us just down the road at Fob Riffley. A group of us were in one of the platoon planning rooms within the SOC C at our camp in TK, and we were rolling through a, a walkthrough, talkthrough, along with the SEALs of the different moving parts of this operation and how it was all going to work. So in the midst of all that, Rhett's walked in with this piece of paper in his hand and a big shit-eating grin on his face from ear to ear. I don't know if they still do it, but there used to be upon reaching the rank of sergeant, you'd have a period of time to claim a retention bonus if you then decided to stay in the ADF for another few years. In addition to that, there was a retention or some sort of payout that occurred once you hit sergeant from your super uh, MSBS as well. If your admin staff were switched on and they'd been doing this for a while, they usually took care of you. And anyone heading over to Afghanistan was submitted just before or upon getting into country. So it was processed by them in a tax-free zone. As a result, you'd receive your bonus while still in country, tax-free. And this is what had just happened to Brett. And the piece of paper in his hand was his payslip. So he's standing there with this big shit-eating grin and everyone's sort of starting to notice that he's just standing there smiling. And just everyone's like, what? What's wrong? What's up? And he started handing it around. And no matter how many guys have already got it, it's always a thing to look at it. It's a salary variation advice is what it's called, but it's a payslip. And this one was $97,000 for a fortnight's pay. <laughs> and he's passing it around and everyone's going, whistling or just variations of the word fuck like fuck fuck fucking hell fuck as it's getting past finally gets to the seal platoon commander who's standing there as well laughing about it, and he looks at it and just goes god damn for 95k i'll fucking fight for the crown and then everyone else is just going ah, yeah <laughs> yeah had a laugh seals couldn't believe you got that much money in one hit but um yeah just a little moment like that I think he was, uh, he would have been KIA like uh, maybe six, seven weeks later. I'm Dr. Dan Pronk. I was uh, formerly a doctor with Army Special Operations and spent a bit of time with Brett over the years, particularly in the deployed setting in Afghanistan. And my enduring memories of Brett come from the last couple of days of his life on the, the mission where he would eventually lose his life. It was a two-day mission down into southern Afghanistan and we'd met with pretty heavy fighting we'd inserted in the middle of the night and, and almost immediately the target village uh, we'd been engaged and pretty heavy fighting through that night. The second day it was, it was hot and uh, very heavy fighting. Towards the end of the evening there, we were running pretty low on water and ammunition and we called in a, um, a supplies drop. So a Hercules came in and ended up dropping the pallets in the wrong spot and the pallets broke up and, and uh, disintegrated. And, and I remember Brett was the one who led the recovery of all of that and it was out in the open. It was in uh, right in front of actually a couple of machine gun positions that the enemy had been engaging us from all that day and, and in complete darkness he coordinated that and recovered all our ammunition and made sure that every element had their ammo and their water and then into that second day of fighting it intensified further the enemy had reinforced overnight and we started to take casualties uh, that second morning we initially had a guy who had a, uh, a shrapnel injury to his lower leg. And I recall Brett, I was in a different compound, and I recall Brett came across to get me and watching him just moving through the village towards our compound to grab me to, to take me back. And he, he just looked so at home. He was just such so natural in that environment and, and just a warrior. And so he came, grabbed me. We went and started treating this shrapnel-wounded guy. And, and while we were doing that, we had another couple of casualties. So they were 
grenade injuries. They'd caught some frag from a grenade. And so they came to us and Brett coordinated the medical evacuation. So we, we treated those guys on the ground and got some, some aircraft in. And, and, and that was opposed. The enemy uh, was, was determined to shoot up those AME birds. And so Brett had to coordinate some basically close air support from some Apaches to get those helicopters in to get our guys onto those aircraft and get them back to the surgical facilities. And so he um, coordinated all of that and got our guys out of there to safety. And and then it was later on that afternoon that that he was leading a clearance force into an enemy compound series uh, when he, he struck the device. And I, I remember that quite vividly. I was up on the, the roof of of our compound and the, the explosion was massive it was it was huge and the everything fell silent it was quite eerie actually all the gunfighting stopped and just this huge blast and for a few seconds everything was just silent and and then we started to get the information in that there, there'd been a, an ied strike and and i moved forward I, I joined up with a quick reaction force and and moved forward into the compound where brett's mates had, had dragged him back to and and they'd done a brilliant job of initiating the the medical management and I, I fell into the, the management there and you know, we did everything we could to, to save him, but unfortunately got beaten by the injuries on the day and we, we lost Brett that afternoon. And that's what sticks in my mind when I think of Brett. I think about him just being completely at home in that environment and, and just a, an incredible warrior, incredible leader and just those efforts to you know, risk himself to save his mates and then that courageous effort to push forward to try and clear that enemy compound series that eventually cost him his life. And and he certainly was very good at what he did. He seemed to love what he did and he died doing what he loved. And and even though over the years, my interactions with him weren't huge, he wasn't the sort of bloke who came to see the doctor. So I certainly had nothing to do with him from a professional capacity. But despite the fact that, that my interactions weren't huge and, and uh, I didn't know him tremendously, well, our lives kind of collided, if you like, on that day, and, and he's left a huge impact on me. Pretty much not been a day in the last 10 years where I haven't thought about Brett and the sacrifice he made on that day. Another time where I, again, uh, was really struck with how much he uh, knew me more than I even knew myself was that I wasn't aware that he'd put instructions in that if anything happened to him, that his friend Jamie needed to be part of the notification party. And so when the doorbell rang at 5am in the morning and I opened the door and saw people in uniform and I knew what it meant and I closed the door again, it was Jamie's voice that said to me, Elvie, open the door. That gave me the strength to open the door and to let them in. And I think if there hadn't been somebody that I knew there... I don't think I would have opened the door again. And I think um, Brett knew that. Brett knew that I would need somebody. I would need that that comfort. I would need to have a familiar face. So the fact that, again, he knew me so well and he knew what I needed before I even did is just something that, yeah, I just um, always carry that in my heart. I think your stories here do show the incredible thoughtfulness of Brett and they also show that idealistic mateship, that brotherhood that, they can sound like cliches at times, mm. but here, whether it's in the highest of moments or in the most tragic of moments, that comes through having Jamie at the door there for you. And I know you were surrounded by Jamie, H and others as the media circus and all that unfolded. It's um, wonderful that although you lost Brett, you gained all those others to lean on and give you strength. I was very, very, very fortunate to have them with me during that time. It was so hard because the one person I needed wasn't there. And 
I was so grateful to have Jamie and H there. That's what got me through those first couple of weeks um, was having their support, was having being able to bounce ideas off them, just being able to talk to them, just having them near me because they reminded me so much of Brett, but at the same time they weren't him and um, that's the one person I didn't need. Another story and probably the most um, shocking moment for me was uh, when I was notified and um, you hear people talk about these things, you know, when I was a lot younger and when certain things happen in their life, how distinct those memories are and how distinctly you can recall them. And it's not, I guess, until some of these traumatic things happen to you and you reflect back on that. So I can remember exactly where I was sleeping, who I was sleeping with. I was at Coltana and I was down there providing uh, additional um, safety and uh, specialist support, um, which I regularly did to the companies before they would uh, deploy to Afghanistan. So it'd been a series of many long days and nights. And I remember, um, you know, we were sleeping off in a, another separate building, myself and a couple of other senior NCOs from the unit. And I remember my phone calling and being notified. And um, you know, I can just remember that absolute, you know, shocking, shocking moment. But also in particular was that he had notified LV and LV had asked for me and a couple of others to you know, come back to help support her. And from there, I remember packing and uh, driving from uh, Coltana to Adelaide, CT to uh, Stand 2 Lock Speed the whole way and uh, actually got two tickets. Yeah, it was quite emotional. And then uh, once I arrived there, the flight that I was uh, going to connect to was literally moments away from closing. So I had a hire car and I parked the hire car and everyone will relate to how kind of severe this more stupid maybe this moment was I parked the hire car out the front of the airport as in where you get dropped off because you, know, you can't do that now and so I parked it on I just remember yelling at a guy going that's a hire car and um, the keys are in it and then when I was inside the aircraft ringing the hire company to tell them where the car was which they were extremely upset calls and messages etc started to um, flood in but went straight from the airport straight to um, Elvis I think Z Jamie Zimmerman may have picked me up at the airport. I can't recall 100% now. Actually, I'm pretty sure he did. And then took me straight to um, Elvis. So that's, like I said, the, probably the, one of the most uh, unpleasant moments in my life and certainly one that I remember vividly being informed, like I said. But yeah, absolute, absolute fucking tragic moment. From what you've told me, Charlene, I can imagine that it wasn't really until after Brett's passing you learned more about what a professional soldier he was, what a top-performing, highly respected soldier he was, and sort of the extent of the love the unit had for him and just what he did. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until when we found out that Brett passed that we started to realise how big of a deal he really was and, you know, how accomplished he was. He achieved so much in his short life. He's always been an inspiration to me growing up and he's always been someone that I have always deeply, deeply admired. I didn't really realise how admired he was within the unit and and by the public. When he passed away, there were so many ceremonies, there was so much in the news. We had so many people, you know, contacting us and sending their love. And just the funeral itself, there was a whole procession, there was a motorcade, the Prime Minister was there, it was huge, there were thousands of people there. And the stories that started coming out about Brett were just incredible and we had no idea. Like to us, it was just our big brother, that was Brett. We knew that he was amazing, we knew that he was cheeky, we knew about all these beautiful values about him, that he was a leader and that he inspired us but we didn't really realise how much he really inspired everyone else as well. And I think that's just really special. 
The legacy of Brentwood, it's 10 years on, it still feels as fresh as yesterday, but 10 years has certainly passed. And I think there's quite a few things that I like to reflect and there's positive legacies of Brett. There's a hero workout named after him. Uh, it's the first official CrossFit workout. It's five rounds, 400 meter running, swimming, deadlift, high pulls, thrusters, burpee bucks jumps. A group of us wrote that workout for him in his honour and that that workout went viral. And just a, a sidebar on that, yeah, Brett and I used to love running. We, I've got a fond memory of us sort of running from Coogee to Bondi often and just talking about our, our lives and in our careers and what we're going to do post-army as well. I think that's a really good positive legacy out there amongst the other hero workouts too. I think he's got a very distinct professional legacy within the regiments and the command. Just to put in the context, you look at a person of his caliber and his experience and the years of investment into a man of his capacity, that's not easy to recover from for guys to come through and that loss of experience. But in saying that, he did deliver on capability and professional standards and he was a mentor for so many. The Australian War Memorial has got a great tribute for Brett and others. And I think that's great for, for the public to go and, and witness and listen to our servicemen and women and paying tribute, and, and in particular Brett's uh, tribute down there as well. I also look at the, the legacy from a different light as well as it's the reality of war. Brett and many others, there's a, a deep need to protect our sovereignty and having people step up to the plate to be that uh, line at the gate to protect us. And I know that there's a, from a positive legacy point of view, Brett paid the ultimate sacrifice and men and women will continue to step up and it will come at a cost. And in saying that, Brett had everything, his affairs in order behind the scenes. And it's always good to, to acknowledge that, that uh, the men and women coming through the ranks is to, to have everything uh, ready and have your affairs in order. Have those conversations with family and friends and loved ones in preparation to go to a job that uh, is tough, it's hard, and it does come with a heavy price on, on some fronts. I often um, think about the photo, the official photo that is out in the public of Brett, which is him and his sergeant police with these medals and it's a very formal it's not him. When it is out there in a newspaper or it's flashed up on the news or, or whatever, I often think or wonder what do people think when they see that photo. They can't possibly see the man that he was, which was a man that laughed and smiled and had this great sense of humour. And So that was a bit of a struggle for me. That That's the, the impression that people have of him. But that's not who he is to me or to so many other people that knew him. He loved being in the army. He loved to commando. He loved the guys that he worked with. And it, and it sounds like such a cliche that he loved serving uh, for Australia, but it's so true. It's what he wanted to do. And when he first told me that he would be deployed and I said to him, well, why would you want to do that? Why do you want to go overseas? And he said, the way to look at it is that all this time I've been training for a footy match that I can never play. And I'm finally get to go and play that game now. And I... It's what I've been training for every single day that I've been in the army and, and that really put it into context for me that this is somebody that just was so passionate about what they do and their role into commando. The thing about grief is that it doesn't ever end. People kind of look at you and you think you're being judged about when is she going to get over this or when is it going to end, but it doesn't. You just, 
you just learn to carry it with you but it's it's always there to to lose someone so important to you in a way that you didn't get the chance to say goodbye properly you you carry that loss with you there's no way that I'll ever not have that in me and I, I mean I think about him every day every day there's something that reminds me of him or there's a song on the radio or just something random we adopted a dog together and I'll just pat our dog and just reminds me of him and I just think about how happy we were when we the day that we adopted him and so every day there is a reminder of him and I'm so grateful that I met him I wasn't his wife for very long but you know we'd spent um seven years together before that I'd do it all over again to have spent that time with him and to have been his wife was just yeah very special part of my life Charlene it's almost 10 years on from his passing as we speak today A lot of people have shared their memories of Brett as a soldier, as a leader, as a role model, as an inspiration. It forms an all-around picture of a hero. First and foremost to you, he's a big brother. How do you reflect on his legacy and his life today? To think that it's been 10 years is incredible. It feels like it was just yesterday that it happened. The heartache of losing him has never really left. You know, he was always the rock in our family and when he passed, we were worried that we'd all fall apart. But I've realised till this day he's still the one bringing us together. He's still the reason that I call my brother and my dad and get in touch with the unit. You know, he's still bringing us together and he was always bringing us together when we were younger. You know, we were from a broken family, but he was the first one to call. He was the first one to organise for us to go to lunch and to dinner and to get together and to fly over to the other side of the country to see my dad in Perth, you know, and say that we're a family, we need to be united. And I feel like to this day, he's still uniting us. He's still my biggest inspiration. He's still, you know, the one that I turn to when things are tough. And I think, how would Brett want me to live my life he would want me to do all the things he can no longer do and yeah I guess he's still my biggest inspiration and even though he's gone I feel like he's still keeping us together thank you again to all contributors for this episode in a moment I'm going to close out the episode by reading the citation for Brett's medal for gallantry You can find out more about this show at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thank you for listening. And lest we forget. Part of the citation for Brett Wood's Medal for Gallantry. On the 17th of July, 2006, during Operation Perth, the commando platoon was tasked to conduct the clearance of an anti-coalition militia sanctuary in the Chora Valley, Orozgan Province, Afghanistan. The platoon was partnered in support of an infantry company of the United States Army 10th Mountain Division. At approximately 1pm, the infantry company came under heavy rocket-propelled grenade and small arms fire on multiple flanks, resulting in six wounded and one soldier killed in action, effectively halting their advance. Through thick vegetation, Facing large numbers of dispersed anti-coalition militia and under heavy fire, the commando platoon commenced manoeuvring to provide assistance to the element which was pinned down. During this move, the commando platoon received a volley of four rockets which impacted in the centre of the platoon's position, 
resulting in six Australian soldiers wounded in action, a loss to the platoon by one-third of its force. Unknown to the commander at the time, Corporal Wood had also been wounded in the foot by fragmentation from the rocket-propelled grenade barrage. In order to regain the initiative, Corporal Wood's team was tasked by the Commando Platoon commander to assault forward and clear a group of compounds from which they were receiving anti-coalition militia fire. Under these daunting conditions, Corporal Wood commenced this task without hesitation, completing a rapid and aggressive clearance of numerous threat compounds. Once achieved, both United States and Australian elements were free to continue with the battle, providing the necessary time to effect the backloading of the wounded by helicopter to the forward operating base. Throughout the afternoon, numerous and relentless probing attacks by a determined opponent followed. Corporal Wood displayed extraordinary leadership and courage, inspiring his team and the remainder of the commando platoon to repel the continued attacks. He then successfully led a marksmanship team to infiltrate the anti-coalition militia-held territory, killing seven anti-coalition militia. Corporal Wood's actions on the 17th of July, 2006, as a commando team commander during Operation Perth were a testament to his leadership, fortitude, and sense of duty to his team and the platoon. His determination to continue to lead his team during the battle in extremely hazardous circumstances, despite being wounded, ensured that the commando platoon regained the initiative and contributed significantly to a decisive victory. His gallantry and leadership in the face of the enemy has been of the highest order and in keeping with the finest traditions of Special Operations Command Australia, the Australian Army and the Australian Defence Force.